I'll invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to focus on verses 17 through 24. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge a couple of things. Number one, uh, the significance of this day. It was my privilege a couple of years ago on Father's Day in June of 2008 to have the privilege to preach during that particular Sunday. And I can remember, and I shared with you at that time, the significance of my father, Samuel Burnap, who essentially played such a role in my faith in Christ Jesus, and I give thanks for that. And he died when I was age 12 in 1953, a long time ago, but he left me a legacy in Christ. And I can remember that it was about uh, probably a couple of days after he passed away on a Tuesday night of 1953 that uh, the Baptist Brotherhood of the First Baptist Church of Taylor met and they had a, uh, a testimony time and they wrote a transcript from that and I can remember reading that transcript when I was about 14 years of age and in a rebellious frame of mind and I can remember reading in particular uh, one brother's testimony that he was so impressed with the fact that my father had rejoiced greatly at answered prayer when my sister and I made our professions of faith in Christ Jesus. And I can remember specifically, and matter of fact, my daughter had put together for me an album a, a few years ago, and among them was a document that uh, they signed. Uh, when they came to pick me up two weeks after my birth in November of 1940, and, and I'm giving you all sorts of clues as to how old I am, I'm not. But nevertheless... <clears throat> They came and picked me up two weeks after that. And, uh, and that document had to be signed by them. And one of the things they had to agree to do, and this is a really in, politically incorrect thing today, but they had to agree that they were going to raise, first of all, they had to verify, and they had to have testimony from other witnesses that they were believers in Jesus Christ. And the thing that they had to agree to do was to raise me in a Christian home, not just and just a, 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 some kind of a make-believe, but it had to be the real thing. And they had to have testimony that they were going to do that. And they had sworn, sworn testimony when they signed uh, the release papers, if you will, that they were going to do just that. And they did. And I praise God for that. For the legacy of my father, who was a devout follower of Jesus Christ, that he would raise me in a Christian home, and that I would grow to know my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the significance of this day always comes home to me uh, on Father's Day as I rejoice for what he did for me and giving me not only a name, but giving me salvation in Christ. I also want to thank all of you here. As most of you know, this past couple of weeks, uh, you've received on the prayer chain uh, a, a plea to plead for or to pray for my, my granddaughter, my six-year-old granddaughter. Uh, who was undergoing a very serious brain surgery called a hemispherectomy, where essentially because she had suffered a stroke at birth, uh, she, had, uh, she had really had, beginning at age three in particular, she had suffered one seizure after another, epileptic seizures. And it had gotten to the point where it was having a dramatic impact on her ability to learn. And so they had been trying to treat this condition with drugs, and, uh, and they had tried about uh, five different regimens over a period of uh, three years, and they just didn't help. So they finally met up, God, uh, thank God, for, with, with a surgeon. 
uh, and a lady who was a specialist and said what they had today was a surgical procedure whereby they would go in and remove the damaged material from the left side of her brain where the, where the, where the uh, stroke had originally occurred before she was born, and that uh, they would then disconnect the left side from the right side because they had pretty much assumed safely that the brain had kind of already rewired itself. And all of the functions that she was, she was um, ha- having, essentially, as speech and everything else, was taking place on the right side of the brain. So it was a dangerous thing, and when we first heard of it, it was devastating for us to hear that. Because they can even go so far as to remove the left side of the brain entirely from the brain cavity. But what they did on Thursday of last week is that they operated and removed that part of the, uh, the brain tissue and then disconnected the left side of the brain from the right, because if, the, if they didn't do that and the seizure activity continued, eventually it would spread to the right side of the brain and have a sub- substantial impact upon her cognitive ability. And so uh, by the time she was a teenager, she would have been pretty much disadvantaged in every sense of the word. So this procedure was done Thursday morning. And the amazing thing was, God answered prayer abundantly beyond all that we could pray or ask. It's just incredible. As a matter of fact, the surgeons, the doctors, the specialists, the nurses were utterly amazed. Normally, this surgery takes place, and it's sometimes as long as four to five days after surgery before the patient regains consciousness. And then it's about another week in the hospital before they allow them to go home. In our case, Molly was able to go home five days after the surgery. She became conscious three hours, two hours actually, uh, after the surgery. And during that time, she told a joke to the, to the doctors. She had been to see Cinderella, the play, as a special gift from her other grandmother on the Wednesday before to kind of keep her mind off this, and she was just absolutely enthralled and astounded by this play. She, she loves Cinderella, and this was an incredible thing for her, and she told one of the Cinderella jokes to the surgeons, and he said, I've never had a patient ever do that. And not only that, but she was ready to go home. She had fully recovered, and her speech was there. And that's just an amazing thing. It's so obviously God's incredible creation when he does this to enable the brain, which is damaged on the left side, and a constant seizure activity had been going on, to then uh, adjust and be able to live a fairly normal life and show a, a pretty good amount of intellect. And, and I'll brag about her. She's, uh, she's, she's one of the most creative, imaginative little six-year-olds you'd ever want to see in your life. But it's just amazing to see what God did, that she was able to go home the fifth day, last Tuesday, is when she left, out to the Thursday operation, and she went home, and she's recovering well at home and, and just making progress daily. It only goes to show how God answered prayer in such a magnificent way. And in particular, not only the prayers of the saints at the Alliance Bible Church of McHenry, but the saints at um, the uh, Evangelical Covenant Church of Wauwatosa and the E-Free Church of Stevens Point, Wisconsin, and other friends and family that prayed diligently, and God intervened. Because I can remember specifically praying, God, I pray that your healing power will be made so manifest that the doctors and nurses will be astounded. And that's exactly what happened. 
They were, this is the first time in the history of this surgical procedure that any patient's ever gone home that early. Absolutely the first time. So we praise God, and we thank you for your prayers. We have much to be grateful for, do we not? Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's look at verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 4. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are our Father. Our Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you have sent your Son and your Holy Spirit. And we have not only a Savior and Lord in him, who you have sent, We have a brother, we have a friend, we have a redeemer, so great he is. O Lord, Father, thank you for your greatness, your majesty, your power made manifest in him who is our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for your great grace toward us, the blessings with which you bless us that we cannot even begin to imagine, much less think or ask. O Father, thank you for that great grace. And thank you, God, that you have called us out of the futility of our old mindset. Before we were redeemed, Lord, before we knew Jesus, Lord, we lived in the futility of our minds. But because of your great grace, because of your mercy, because of the witness of your Holy Spirit, we know Jesus Christ is Lord. We have been rescued. We have been redeemed. We thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you for the promise of your word. We thank you for the admonition that he gives to us to put aside the old man and to be refreshed and renewed, regenerated in the the newness of your Holy Spirit in our minds, Father, so that we we might put off the old man and put on the new to the glory of Jesus Christ in our lives. We ask this in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Verse 17 of chapter 4 is a significant turning point in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. He says something here that really is a transition. And in the old King James it says, therefore, in here it says in verse 17, so this I say and affirm together in the Lord. And he's making a very emphatic point of something that's changed here. And he's giving people an insight into the commandments that we need to live by as regenerated believers in Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, remember who he is writing this to. To the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the believers who are at the church at Ephesus and who are indeed faithful in the Lord. 
That's who to, to whom he's writing. And then in verse 3, he begins that wonderful uh, exposure to the grandest doctrines of our faith. The glorious truths that are laid out beginning with blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in him. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. What glorious truths Paul begins to lay out. In that, in that passage of scripture. Actually, the very first, uh, from beginning verse three through, uh, through verse 14 is just really one sentence. And, and Paul is laying out these truths in such a glorious way that he just goes on, it just pours forth from him in a glorious way. Uh, you know, about, um, I think it was around three or four months ago, Kerry preached here one Sunday morning and he said something in the course of his sermon that really struck home to me. The Holy Spirit used his words to really convict me, and that was the fact that as Christians, and he was talking about how we live the Christian life, that we ought to memorize large passages of Scripture. And I can remember uh, that that really struck home, as I said, and as a consequence, I committed to myself that I would, over the course of the next couple of three years, try to memorize the first four chapters of Ephesians. I undertook that process, and, and all I can say is this. If, if a 69-year-old, somewhat average intellect type of individual can memorize passages of Scripture, then anybody can do it. Anyone can. Let me assure you that it is possible for anyone to do this. And I tell you what the benefits are. As you begin to be exposed to the great, great and glorious truths of God's Word, especially in this first chapter of, uh, of Ephesians, it's magnificent what God does for you. I can remember, uh, you know, when you get ready to go to sleep at night, that, uh, you know, every kind of thing in the, in the world can pass through your mind. Every kind of worry, every kind of thought that you don't want to have, but it can pass through you. It seems like that's the opportune time for Satan sometimes to work on the human mind. But when the mind is full of the Word of God, when you begin to meditate upon what does it mean that he has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, in Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean when he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to his riches and glory, which he lavished on us. What does it mean that he lavished something on me? I mean, God has blessed us with spiritual blessings that are beyond our comprehension. We, mind's not seen. And our ear uh, heard. We just can't, we can't understand it. We can't comprehend it. Because we are still in the flesh right now. When we're fully sanctified and stand before him in glory, I think we'll have a great idea of what he meant by this. But right now, it's just unfathomable. It's just unsearchable. It's no way that we can begin to wrap our mind around it. These are the great doctrinal truths that Paul laid out in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. And then in beginning here in verse 4, pardon me, verse 17 of chapter 4, he begins to, uh, to encourage us and instruct us on how we ought to conduct ourselves as believers, as saints, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this kind of code of conduct as we sometimes think about it, and by the way, I'm going to caution you on that, that, that word. It's not a code of conduct that he's giving us. I had a code of conduct when I was in the armed services. I had to memorize that as a soldier. It's probably changed by now, I'm sure. But nevertheless, it was a code of conduct that we were expected to live by if we ever, in particular, came under captivity as a prisoner of war. But the fact of the matter is, is that we have, we don't have a code of conduct. We have a way of living. And there's a difference between the two. But here in Ephesians, at beginning in verse 17 of chapter 4, Paul begins to instruct us as to how we apply these doctrinal truths to our lives. And sometimes we come across all sorts of problems as a consequence of this. And the reason that we do, I really truly believe, and I can remember reading this as I was doing my research for the sermon, and one of my favorite preachers, and I think he's one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, was David Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I can remember he said this, Our conduct must always arise from and be dictated by and controlled by our doctrine. Our conduct ought to be ought to arise from, spring forth from, and be controlled by and dictated by our doctrine. What the doctrinal truths that we believe. So this is why we need to know them. This is what the, this is the advantage of locking them in your mind, so that you begin to meditate on, on upon, upon them. Uh, as it says in Psalms, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or sit in the seat of scoffers, or walk in the way of sinners, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates, and he will be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. When you think about it, how is it that we begin to meditate on God's law, and we're talking about the Word of God, the revealed Word of God that we have, especially in the New Testament of our faith. And what we see here is a real problem sometimes with how we try to appeal to the will, the volition, to abide by these things, when indeed something has happened, or something has, I better said, has not happened yet, and as a consequence, we find ourselves trying to live by a code of conduct which is exactly the same thing as trying to live by the law. And if we try to live by the law, what's going to be the result? Failure. We're not going to make it. If we try to live by the law, I don't care how good our intentions are, no man can keep the law. Paul makes it clear in the Romans. Just read Romans, and you'll come across that truth very, very much head on. The fact is, is that we need something in order to live by the conduct or conduct ourselves according to the admonition of our faith that we find here, beginning throughout the rest of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 and 6 of, of Ephesians. And as we begin to understand how that applies, we know this, that we have to have the mind changed. The mind has to be renewed, not just once, but daily, constantly, day by day, moment by moment. And as a consequence of that, we will, when, by the way, when the mind is transformed and changed, the will, that is the volition, will follow. It'll happen every time. It's a principle by which we can, we can, we can just absolutely be confident of, and we can know that we'll, we'll, it will occur. So I want to tell you that what we need to understand is what Paul has said to us here. 
that uh, is not a code of conduct, but it is a way by which we ought to live, and we ought to be doing it for the glory of Christ, and it, re- it requires several things. I want to go, first of all, to, uh, to the first aspect is Paul's admonition to us no longer to walk as the Gentiles walk. He says, in the, con- in the futility of their mind. So what's the condition? The f- condition of the lost is that they have futile minds in every sense of the word. Their, their souls are basically are empty, and their minds are striving to come to an understanding that it, they will never reach. If I had to use the words, what is it that uh, dictates the thoughts of the majority of people in the United States of America today, I'm going to tell you right now, it's secular humanism. That's the religion that's being taught. And every phase and aspect of our life is being taught in our schools. It's being taught in our government. It's being propagated in our, our communication media of every kind. That is, which says, secular humanism says, man does not need God. And basically, it is atheistic in its nature. It does not believe in God. It sees no need for God. Man is able to rescue himself. All he needs to be done is to educate him. And that he will eventually be able to come good enough. We will eventually have this utopia of peace on earth. What a foolish concept. I see no scripture that ever gives me that. So therefore, secular humanism doesn't pay attention to scripture. It has no need for that truth. It cannot understand it. It is the spiritual things that cannot be discerned by those who have been entrapped in the thinking of secular humanism. And therefore, it is Marxist in its philosophy, as well as being atheistic in its foundations. And it is basically, in every sense of the word, at at odds with God. It is, as Paul describes here in chapter uh, 4 of verse 17, he says that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God. It does not understand spiritual things. It's incapable, as Paul explains in Corinthians, it is incapable of understanding spiritual things. So therefore, the, the condition is one of lostness. The result of the condition is a moral understanding that is darkened and their reasoning obscured. The reason for the condition is that it is willful ignorance because of the hardness of their heart. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself the question, how can people, and this is something that we as Christians, we, uh, we just naturally don't even begin to understand it, because how can someone be confronted with the truth? I'm talking about the truth that God reveals. And then willfully say, I have no need of that. I don't want any part of that. My choice is to ignore it. I'm going to refuse the way of eternal life. We say, how can that be? The reason is, as he describes here, the hardness of their heart. They have become so callous, so hard-hearted toward the gospel, the truth of God, that eventually they become a prey to unbridled sensuality. If it feels good, do it. If it satisfies the flesh, have at it. And I think it's summed up very well in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. And if you read the world's philosophy today, it's this. And Paul, or pardon me, Isaiah warns of it. He warns of it quite adequately where he says... Woe to those who call evil 
good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to them who call good evil and evil good. Think about it. That's exactly what you hear every day on the news. Every time you turn on the TV. Essentially, every time you read the newspaper or magazines of kinds. You're hearing good is evil and evil is good. The, the sensuality has, of the mind has eventually just utterly warped mankind's ability to think straight whatsoever. It's a, it's a tragedy. So why do people hear the message of truth and then refuse it? It's because of this very condition that Paul is warning the church at Ephesus about. Don't walk as the Gentiles or as the heathen walk. Rather, do something else. And he says something that's, uh, that really caught my attention. And that is, uh, it, there in verse 20, but you did not learn Christ this way. For some of you that are news hounds like I am, and I admit it's a, it's a fault. I have, I, it's a fault of mine. I, I, I listen to too much news. But there is one particular guy that comes on every night uh, that I usually listen to. Sometimes. I, I can't tolerate it other times. But the fact is, it, he, he starts off his, his show with this comment. Caution! You are about to enter the no-spend zone. Have you, you know who I'm talking about? Well, Paul has done something just like this. He's saying, caution! You did not learn Christ this way. You did not learn him this way. And he goes on to say in verse 21, If indeed you have heard him, if you've heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, you also, having heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. The fact is this. Caution. You did not learn Christ this way. You were not taught this way. You, has, you must live differently. The testimony of your life must be different than what we just described about those who are living in the futility of their minds. We have no excuse as Christians in this day and age to be warped by the worldview of secular humanism. But we are. And it was amazing, and as I preached one uh, a couple of years ago, that George Barna, whose research into Christian thinking of born-again believers, had said that, that only 9% of people who claim to be born-again believers have a Christian or biblical worldview. That's an amazing statistic. It just blows my mind. 9%. Only that much have a biblical worldview. We've allowed our thinking to be polluted by secular humanism and every other kind of New Age philosophy and all of these sorts of things that, that compete for our attention as well as the affections of our hearts. What a pathetic thing it is. But you did not learn Christ this way, he says. Then verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Strip it off, get rid of it, lay it aside, put it off. 
which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. The old self is the flesh. And we were admonished by Paul in Romans not to walk in the flesh, but to walk instead in the spirit. And this is what we have to do. And it goes on to say here in verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that's not the only place where Paul has said this. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, especially in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He wants us to demonstrate this, as it says in Ephesians, to the praise of the glory of his grace. That people might look at us and see the light of God in us. Let your light so shine before men. Why? Does it glorify me? No. So that your Father in heaven might be glorified. That's what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light so shine before men that your heavenly Father might be glorified. And so therefore we ought to be transformed by the renewing of our mind and put on the new man. Let's turn over to Colossians for just a moment. I always believe that uh, the greatest commentary on Scripture is always found in Scripture. Now, let's look at Colossians chapter 3 for just a second. And in verse 9, as a preliminary, the the real specific emphasis comes in verse 10, but it says in verse 9, at verse 3 of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, Do not lie to one another since you lay aside the old self with its evil practices. Again, lay aside the old self. Don't lie to one another. There's no room, by the way, in our conduct as Christians for lying to one another. It says this in verse 10, And you have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. That's the image of God in us. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew and so on. And he goes in in verse 12. He says, so as those who have not been chosen, who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So the fact is, is that we have some clear instructions on how we ought to live and conduct ourselves as saints to whom this letter was addressed, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. We're talking about those who are believers, not those who are super Christians, those who have sometimes problems in the flesh, who can become even carnal, perhaps. But the fact is, That we have clear instruction on how we ought to live to the glory of God. And so we ought to put on the new self. And what does this mean, to put on the new self? And, And Paul specifically says this in Colossians and also here in Ephesians. He says it elsewhere. It's intimated in other scriptures as well. What is it that we need to do to put on the new self? That is, the regenerated self through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the sanctification. That's the process taking place in us, even as we sit here today, that began when we first believed. 
and will continue until we see him face to face and are glorified by the work of the Holy Spirit as we, as we see him. So what does this mean? The fact is this. We have choices that we must make in our lives. Choices every single day. God has given us the ability, the freedom of choice to believe him or not. He's given us the ability to believe the scriptures and to understand that all scriptures inspired by God is profitable for teaching, for doctrine, for reproof, for training in righteousness, for correction. All of these processes, it's all there for us. And that is something that happens to us and to which we must make up our minds on a daily basis sometimes. And actually, not sometimes, all the time. We must make up our minds whether we're going to obey. To obey. Christ said in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, if you love me, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. If you read 1 John, it's one admonition after another of how we ought to live by being obedient to Jesus Christ. His burden, his, his commandments are not burdensome, they are life. So why is it we have great difficulty with this on a daily basis? Why is it, when we look at doctrine, sometimes people say, you know, that's great stuff, but you know, that's for the theologians, that's not something that concerns me. Talk to me about the practical aspects of daily living for Christ. That's what I want to know. And we try to force our will to abide in him and to live by faith without our mind ever being transformed. And this is why I said well ago, if the mind is transformed and renewed, the will will follow. But sometimes we focus on the will and we want to discipline ourselves to live in a such a way that it brings glory to God. And yet we have never had our minds utterly transformed and renewed. And it has to, be, it has to take place daily. Daily. So our choice is this sometimes. Have I taken the time to renew my mind in Christ Jesus? Have I taken the time and made the effort to put off the old man and to put on the new? Have I tried to abide in the word on my own strength? Or am I coming to him on a daily basis so that his power through the Holy Spirit can operate freely in me? To the glory of Christ Jesus. That's what it comes down to. These are the choices we have to make. If you look at the rest of Ephesians, here's what you see. Some clear admonition in, 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 in that we ought to be loving toward one another. And forgiving toward one another. And what tragedy it is to see churches split apart. Because people have consciously refuse to abide by the word of God and have adopted unloving, hateful, spiteful attitudes toward one another. And you see congregations split apart, people going their separate way, angered, living in any way. The world looks upon that and says, I don't see any difference between this and the world's philosophy. What do I need anything with, to do with Christianity? Why would I need it? And the fact is, is that it's by the negative witness sometimes are Christians that the world looks upon us and fails to see the glory of God. The fact is, is that the word is clear about forgiving one another. 
And the way that we're able to do it is by the grace of God freely operating within us. And it says it three times in the scriptures, in the Old Testament once, in the New Testament twice, in James and Peter. God resists the proud, but gives, but gives grace to the humble. So how you need, you need that grace. You can't do it on your own. I don't care how hard you try, how well-intentioned you are, you can't do it without God's grace freely working in your life. And when that grace is working, he, he is, and that, as you humble yourself before him, that means confessing your sins and depending solely upon him, the grace abounds and you are able to love the unlovely. And the fact is, is that we have clear instruction in the word how we ought to love one another, how we ought to be respectful toward one another, to put one another's needs even before our own. And so that goes on. And then in chapter 5, he talks about being an imitator of God. And lastly, especially in chapter 5, he talks about being drunk. Don't be drunk with wine. But what? Be filled instead with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the way by which we gain the strength that we need to live daily for him. To be filled with the Holy Spirit, a continual, constant process, which never ceases. We need it, as long as we're in these fleshly bodies. And then in the next chapter, he goes on to explain the sanctity of marriage and the family. And how important this is, and how it reflects even the doctrines of the church. And lastly, in chapter 6, he goes on to tell us that we ought to put on the full armor of God. Because we're fighting a battle, by the way, not against flesh and blood, but against, what, the enemy of our souls. And this is why we need the Holy Spirit operating fully and freely and completely in us, directing us in every aspect of our life. We need that. We have to have it. And when we put on God's armor, we're ready to do battle with the enemy. And by the way, whether you want to or not, you're at war with the enemy. Just like we're at war in this country. We don't want to acknowledge it sometimes, but we are. And that's the fact. But the fact is, we're always at war against the enemy of our souls. And we need the armor of God in order to prevail. We need him. We need him. So when we look at this and understand this transition between the great doctrinal foundational truths of the Word of God and how they apply to our life, and then how we ought to conduct ourselves in light of this, this is the way it ought to be. That as we begin to understand this in our mind, as the Holy Spirit bears witness and we begin to understand the Word of God in its fullness, we are compelled because of what we have learned and understand. The spiritual insight we gain, the wisdom and insight. By the way, as you read that prayer at the end of chapter 1, about what Paul prays for the, for the believers, and then also the prayer that's right there in the middle of chapter 3, you understand why he prays this. He wants them to know it, to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge, to know its breadth and length and height and depth. He wants you to know the full dimensions of it so that you are so enthralled and thankful and so humble before God that you find it, it is compelling that we obey because we love him and we want to serve him in that way. That's the choices we make. 
That's why we ought to put off the old self completely. Never walk in the futility of our mind. But instead, be renewed in our mind to put on the new self, would reflect the glory of Jesus Christ in our lives. Then our conduct doesn't, doesn't, doesn't become a code of conduct. It becomes a way of life. It's the Christian way of living as his Holy Spirit works out his glory in us for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you have done for us. Thank you for the magnificent, glorious truths of your word. For the doctrine that is profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That is eternal, Father. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word shall never pass away. Your word is eternal. Thank you, Father, for those great truths that you have revealed to us through the New Testament of our faith, a new covenant that you have given through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you, Father, that every admonition, every commandment applies to us without exception. And that you have given us the power whereby we might live and obey for the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for your grace operating within us through the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling for his glory. Thank you, God, for all that you do for us daily, moment by moment and hour by hour. Thank you, Father. You are an awesome God. God of grace and mercy. Thank you, Father, that because of the faith we have in Christ Jesus, faith that you have given us, we have peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.